Well, good morning. It is good to be here with you today and be able to uh, look at God's Word together. Uh, I ran into Katie earlier in the week, and I, I told her that this may be a little more Pentecostal than you're used to. She was very gracious. And I say that only to bring up not about me, but if you ever do feel the point at, at some point you need to say amen or praise God, feel free. What's well, not going to bother me a bit? All right? <laughs> exactly. Thank you. All right. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for your word, for your good gifts, for your son, for your love, for your care for us, for your concern for suffering, and that you know uh, and you've communicated to us uh, all of these things so that we may rest in you. And if I say anything that is not true or not useful for building up the kingdom, may those words quickly be forgotten. In your name we pray, amen. All right, so please open up your Bibles or your Bible Gateway app or whatever it is you're doing uh, to Acts chapter 3. We're going to look at that uh, first 13 verses. And as you're doing that, let me just introduce to you the idea, or perhaps just remind you the idea, that there are certain places in Scripture that give us a great gift. And it's a gift we all long for, a gift that we all desire. The gift is to see what God is up to at any given moment. We see it in Psalm 2 pretty clearly. Because Psalm 2 switches back and forth between scenes on earth and scenes in heaven. The first scene, the kings of the earth are getting ready to make war, to break their chains and rebel against God. And then it switches to heaven, and God is laughing. As if they could. <laughs> and he says, as for me, I have set my king on Zion, on my holy hill. The scenes continue to go, and we know that by the end, this is really about Jesus. This is about his promise of victory. This is about what God will do for us. And we are certain of that. That what God is up to is Christ. But this isn't the only place where we get a direct picture, so to speak. Uh, the book of Revelation is, is full of this. Uh, it switches back and forth between scenes on earth to scenes in heaven. And it's because of that that it's a great gift to everyone has ever, who has ever suffered. Because as they cry out, how long, O Lord, how long, we see to heaven that the one who is worthy, the lamb who was slain, has taken the throne. And we see as Nero continues his evil and as they wonder if their sacrifice is in vain, the heavens open and we see the one on the white horse called Faithful and True. Faithful and True. And he's preparing to make war in righteousness and justice. More suffering in the last picture, of course. We see the wedding feast of the Lamb, where we will all be. So what's God up to? He's up to Christ, and he cares about our suffering. And that's what I want to talk about today. Uh, three different points. Uh, God is validating Jesus as his Christ. That it's all about suffering, the kingdom of God. And God has not forgotten you. Those are my three points today. Okay? Let's read Acts 3, verses 1 through 13. One day, Peter and John were going up to the temple at the time of prayer, at three in the afternoon. Now, a man who was lame from birth was being carried to the temple, called, uh, the temple gate called Beautiful, where he was put every day to beg from those going into the temple courts. When he saw Peter and John about to enter, he asked them for money. Peter looked straight at him, as did John. Then Peter said, look at us. 
So the man gave them his attention, expecting to get something from them. Then Peter said, Silver and gold I do not have, but what I do have I give you. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, walk. Taking him by the right hand, he helped him up, and instantly the man's feet and ankles became strong. He jumped to his feet and began to walk. Then he went with them into the temple courts, walking and jumping and praising God. When all the people saw him walking and praising God, they recognized him as the same man who used to sit begging at the temple gate called Beautiful. And they were filled with wonder and amazement at what had happened to him. While the man held on to Peter and John, all the people were astonished and came running to them in the place called Solomon's Colonnade. When Peter saw this, he said to them, Fellow Israelites, why does this surprise you? Why do you stare at us as if by our own power or godliness we have made this man walk? The God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God of our fathers, has glorified his servant, Jesus. You handed him over to be killed, and you disowned him before Pilate, though he had, been, though the, he had decided to let him go. So I'll ask the question, what is God up to? And again, it's the same things. He's validating Jesus. This is all about suffering. And God has not forgotten you. Okay? So let me jump right in here. God is validating Jesus as Christ. Now we're all familiar with Peter's famous phrase that we just read. In fact, I like the King James a little better. Silver and gold have I none, but such as I have give I thee in the name of Jesus Christ, rise up and walk. Right? So there's really no doubt that who is doing this. It's the name of Jesus. But three more times in his speech, the speech that he's giving that we just started and are not finishing, that'll be another sermon. Three more times, he says very similar things. So I'm going to give them to you. The first one is in verse 12, which we did read. The God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God of our fathers, has glorified his servant, Jesus. This is happening because of who Jesus is. And by saying his servant, Jesus, he's identifying him as the promised servant from Isaiah. It's found throughout much of Isaiah, but specifically 40 through 53 and on into 60. Skipping ahead to the next section, by faith in the name of Jesus, verse 16 says, this man whom you see and know was made strong. It is Jesus' name and the faith that comes through him that has completely healed him, as you can all see. And then skipping up one more time, we see even more of what's at stake, verses 19 through 21. Repent then and turn to God so that your sins may be wiped out, that times of refreshing may come from the Lord, and that he may send the Messiah who has been appointed for you, even Jesus. Heaven must receive him or, or hold him until the time comes for God to restore everything as he promised long ago through his holy prophets. Now, no New Testament miracle is an isolated event. Because they're all part of a story that points back. It points back to creation. It points back to the fall. It points to that first promise of redemption in Genesis 3, 15, 16. It points to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. It points to the, what the judges were doing. It points to the kings. It points to the prophets. And even during the silent period where God raised up a nation that could give the entire known world a single language... And then another uh, nation who would give that same area a set of roads so that the gospel could go out. And it goes into then the life of Jesus. No New Testament miracle is an isolated event because it touches back on all sorts of points throughout that. But it doesn't just point back, it also points forward. 
And what does it point forward to? The restoration of all things for what Christ is waiting in heaven to return for. It's a beautiful thing. Miracles always point both backwards and forwards. And in so doing, because they're accessing the promises of God and touching that final fulfillment, they're all about relief of suffering. They relieve suffering. They relieve something that has been broken in the meantime, during the midst of the story. But they're going to do something else. And that is, they're going to reveal the identity of the one doing the miracle. But what about this particular miracle? Does it point back to anything? It does. Isaiah 35. Be strong. Do not fear. Your God will come. He will come with vengeance, with divine retribution. He will come to save you. Then will the eyes of the blind be opened and the ears of the deaf unstopped. Then will the lame leap like a deer and the mute tongues shout for joy. Because the miracle points back and forward, because it's accessing promises and final fulfillment, it's pointing to there's only one person that can do this. It's pointing to the identity of the one doing the miracle. See, John in his gospel tells us the same thing. In John 20, 31, when he's talking to us about why all these signs, and we saw one in chapter 6 today, why all these signs were recorded, it's so that you might know that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing, you might have life in his name. Every New Testament miracle is God validating and proving that Jesus is exactly who he says he is. His chosen king, the suffering servant, the son of David, the son of God, the son of man, on and on and on and on. The different signs that he does accesses his identity so that we won't miss it, so that we would know that God is keeping his promises. We know exactly who is doing what. But we're not really used to thinking about miracles in this way, as identity revealers. Because since the scientific revolution, Western culture hasn't really gotten past the question, are miracles possible? We're kind of stuck there as a culture. Um, and some just ignore the question, some say yes, some say no. But the Enlightenment changed the way we think about it. The Enlightenment says that what we have now is a world that is as it should be. It's running nice. It's doing its thing. It's natural. And so that a miracle becomes something that interrupts or suspends or even breaks what is natural. And rather than being a beautiful picture of God says, this is my king and I'm going to fulfill my promises to you, it becomes some weird thing that's unnatural where God is almost fighting against science or some other thing that we think is natural. But this is not how the Bible sees them at all. And that's part of why I put the, uh, uh, one of the quotes on the front. Um, uh, Tim Keller's quote. You should look at that real quick. It's a good one. I actually left my... Thank you. <laughs> yeah, we'll read that. Christ's miracles were not the suspension of the natural order, but the restoration of the natural order. They were a reminder of what once was prior to the fall and a preview of what will eventually be a universal reality once again, a world of peace and justice without death, disease, 
or conflict. See, that's how the Bible sees it. It's new creation. It's a piece of God's fully restored future, that promise of the restoration of all things, that has come into our present to remind us of what is coming. It's the manifestation of a promise of God that on that day, there will be no more pain, no more sorrow, and no more suffering. And we get to sample it now. Amen? <laughs> okay. Or put it like this. Miracles are not a suspension of the natural order, but a restoration. When the blind man is healed, when a dead man comes back to life, the natural order is being restored. Which means, in some weird way, we're living in an unnatural order. One theologian put it like this. Jesus' healings and all miracles in his name are the only natural thing in a world that is unnatural, demonized, and wounded. Miracles are a sample of the coming new creation, and they all point to Christ because he is the one who is bringing it. And in truth, realizing this should bring us to what we know is the end, and that is worship. Because all theology is only for doxology, that we might praise him. All right, second, miracles are all about suffering. Miracles in the kingdom of God are, at this time, fundamentally about suffering. And we've just seen that God is going to deal with it all. He's going to take care of it all, that all things will be restored, that the suffering will end, and it's going to be a beautiful and wonderful ending. But at this time, the more we grow in Christ, the more we come to love what he loves, the more we realize that what he was doing is pushing back against the darkness and fighting evil and sin, the more we enter into that same work, the more the darkness will push back and the more we'll open ourselves up for suffering. It's just part of the way the kingdom works at this time. The miracles in the New Testament, whether by Jesus or someone else, always open up the worker to being vulnerable to suffering. Peter and John get thrown in jail for this. Their lives are threatened. But it is the same with Jesus. I love John, and he emphasizes over and over and over again, glory and love, glory and love, glory and love, glory and love, and then we get the story of, Jesus, of Lazarus. I think it's 11 times he says love in the chapter right before it, or it's the same chapter. But what does Jesus do? He raises him from the dead four days. That's why he waits, so it's four days, because that's something that only God could do. They had a whole system of how somebody could come back from life, but if it was longer than three days and the spirit had departed for good, it couldn't be done. It's part of why Jesus waits. And when he does that, and when he does something that only God can do, or his chosen Messiah, the Pharisees don't have a choice. They either have to accept him, or they've got to kill him both. When he brought Lazarus out of the grave, he put himself in the grave. 
But the kingdom of God has always been about substitution, and substitution is always about suffering on another's behalf. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. But in our human pride and sin, oftentimes we don't want it that way. We would prefer that God just give us a little bit of extra power or a little bit of self-help or a nice technique to use to be in control. We prefer the superhero model. <laughs> just look what we spend our money on, myself included. Americans have spent over $18 billion on Marvel Comics movies alone. Yes, we prefer the superhero model. And the superhero model, as played out on, on the big screen, power makes them invulnerable. But in real life, supernatural power makes you vulnerable. The greatest miracle of all, God taking on flesh, made God killable, mortal. It split the Trinity, the very source of life. Now, right now, and I don't know why, it is all about suffering. That's not true. I do know why. Even though it seems like it shouldn't be this way. Tim Keller makes a really good point. He says, if Jesus had come in strength the first time to destroy all evil once and for all, there would have been no one left. Because the self-centeredness of the human heart is one of the greatest sources of evil in the world. See, it's really simple. If he would have come in power the first time, we'd all be dead. But he came in weakness. And in weakness, his power comes into our life. Repentance, surrender, suffering, it's the only way that the power of God comes into our life and into a world that desperately needs it through us. We may be tempted by the power of Thor to be invulnerable, but what we need is the power of a crucified Savior who suffers for us. Let me share with you an eyewitness account of how Christians behaved in the second and third centuries of the Greco-Roman world. It won't be news to you, but it's still quite interesting. See, during that time, there were a lot of urban plagues. Experts don't know if it was smallpox or something similar to Ebola or whatever. Um, but at certain times, as many as 5,000 people were dying a day in Rome. That's a lot of people dying. And so those who weren't sick fled. But not the Christians. They stayed behind to take care of them. And one eyewitness summed it up this way. Most Christians in the plague showed unbounded love and loyalty, never sparing themselves and thinking only of others. Heedless of danger, they took charge of the sick and attending to their every need administered to them in Christ. And many of them departed this life serenely happy. For they were infected by their neighbors and cheerfully accepted their pain. So many in nursing and curing others transferred their deaths to themselves and died in their stead. Now, where do you think they got the idea that suffering on another's behalf is the heart of the kingdom? The kingdom of God is all about suffering. I'll take you to my last point, that those who suffer will not be forgotten. The last thing that God is up to, because that's our driving question, the last thing that God is up to in this text is reminding us that those who suffer are not forgotten. And the suffering, as we see it when it's occurring to us, is not actually our greatest need. 
It's not our biggest problem. We're tempted to think that this particular miracle is primarily about a man walking for the first time. But it's an actually about something else. It's about God giving him the opportunity to know what he needs most. God himself. Now put yourself in the man's shoes for a moment, if you will. You've been crippled all your life. You've never walked. Most commentators think the man was around 40 years old. And you hear that there's a man by the name of Jesus and that he's going around the countryside and miracles are happening. The old promises, they're starting to come true. Isaiah 40, 41, 42, 44, 61. What about 35? You begin to repeat to yourself, then will the lame leap like a deer. Because you know, if he is the Messiah, it will come true. Then will the lame leap like a deer. Then will the lame leap like a deer. And then you hear, he's in Jerusalem. And you're at the temple gate every day. He's the Messiah. Of course he'll come to the temple. And maybe he'll heal you too. Then will the lame leap like a deer. And he comes. But there's crowds everywhere. And you can't walk. And no one takes you forward. You cry out over and over to get his attention. But there's too many people. He doesn't seem to hear you. And then he passes you by. You go on to hear that he was later crucified. And your hope is gone. Maybe, maybe there'll be enough coins today to eat. And then when Peter tells him to look up, the man thinks he only needs silver and gold. Because he can no longer imagine anything better. Because Jesus passed him by. But God knows his needs. Not just the ones that we think are the most important. Think about it this way. If you or I were sitting there, if I was sitting there, I would be tempted to say, if I could only walk, things would get better. If I could walk, it would all be okay. If I could walk, I'd be happy at last. But that's not true. Lots of people who've walked all their lives aren't happy at all. That's not his biggest problem. It takes way more to fill the human soul than we could ever imagine. It takes God himself. No relief of suffering, no matter how beautiful that is. No new job, no new relationship, no new toy or vacation or anything else that we tend to highlight as our highest priority at a given time can fill the soul the way God can. So we end up wanting silver and gold. We end up putting our identity there. But what if you have a financial loss? Financial losses are devastating. But if that was your identity, how do you recover? What if you lose a loved one? And the loss of a loved one is a very painful thing. But if that was your identity and that love is now gone, 
how do you recover? Or what if you've lost your health and you don't have that promise running through your head over and over again? Then will the lame leap like a deer and you know that's you? What are you going to do? You see, unless you have that love of God and unless you know the ending, the present can overwhelm you and confuse you to what your deepest need really is. Yes, Jesus hates suffering, and he will deal with it all, but the real enemy is anything that keeps us from the kingdom of God, from the presence of God himself. And usually for me, that's sin. You see, the man was crippled from birth. I just want to go back to him for a second. Because we think this is all about his ability to walk. Which means that in his 40-odd years of life, he'd never once entered the temple. Let that sink in for a minute. He was considered unclean. And because he was considered unclean, he had never been allowed into where the people of God dwelt or where the people of God would gather for worship and where the Spirit of God itself was supposed to dwell. He was always on the outside looking in, and Jesus passed him by. See, it wasn't that healing his legs solved his problem. That was amazing and secondary. It's that God, by faith in the name of Jesus, removed the obstacle from the people of God and where the presence of God should have been. And the first thing he does, he leaps to his feet and he runs in to worship God because he's never been allowed to. Thank you. And we see the foretaste of what's coming, the restoration of all things, and we see it in him. And we, know, we don't know if he understands it completely, but we do know, because we see him later on, that he joined the community of faith that day. His legs that kept him from the temple kept him from the people of God, and it was only when they stopped and reached out that he truly understood God's presence for the first time. So I'll ask you the question again. What is God up to? You see, it's all about Christ. Always. And it's all about that upside-down kingdom that right now, suffering on another's behalf brings new life. And it's all about that those who feel forgotten have not been forgotten by God. But one last thing. It's about remembering the end. Let me explain it this way. I'll use a book. It could be a movie or any other form of story. If you've never read a book and you're reading it for the first time, you don't have any idea what any particular thing means in the final significance. You don't know if this obstacle is going to defeat them, if the hero or heroine will be saved. You don't know what's going to happen. And you have no way to know the significance of any given thing. And it's the same in our lives. We're living it through for the first time. But if we don't know the end, then Jesus passing us by. Or crying out and not being heard seems like the end. But it's not. See, this concept of ending has its own fancy little name. It's called a telos. And it includes, it's a Greek word that means the end or the goal. But it includes two things. It includes sequence and it includes significance. So for sequence, it means what happens last. 
and much of the evangelical church has been really obsessed with what happens last. We've got a whole series of books on it. But the more, point, the more important point is the significance. Because the significance of what happens last rewrites the significance of everything that came before. Did that suffering have a reason? Absolutely it did. Did my pain and sacrifice happen for nothing? Absolutely not. The ending that is coming, the restoration of all things, is going to rewrite everything because in the midst of our circumstances now, we don't see what God is doing and we don't understand, so we have to hold on to the end and the promises of restoration and the promises that there will be no more pain or sorrow or suffering, that we will not be forgotten. Because as Peter declares it over and over again, as Revelation reveals it, and as the whole Bible witnesses, it is all about Christ and the Lamb who was slain is worthy. The one who is faithful and true is coming, and he will restore all things. And if your faith is in that beautiful name of Jesus, praise God, you will not be forgotten. If the ushers will come forward, we'll take the tithes and offerings.